Jason Cochran remembers when visiting the Disney theme parks used to be a little more relaxed. You showed up to the park, you ate a little food, you rode a ride, you sat down, you looked at the balloons, watched the parade, you went home. And now it's like a military operation. Don't do that. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we get time-tested advice from the author of Fromer's Guide to Disney World in Orlando to help de-stress your family's next visit to the world's largest theme park. On the other hand, Pauline Fromer says there's lots of free entertainment when riding the subways in New York City. You're going to have musicians, you're going to have spoken word artists who in other cities might be known as beggars, but here in New York, they are so talented. And dinner can be a lot of fun on a night out with locals in Greece. Don't be afraid to try things of which you have never heard the name or haven't seen the shape. Insider tips for enjoying yourself in Greece, New York City, and Disney World. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. It's one of America's most popular attractions, packed with some 20 million annual visitors from across the country and abroad. The Disney World theme parks are like a world of their own. It's a world that can intimidate your family if you don't know the layout and some of the tricks to getting around the crowds. Coming up in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves, the author of Fromer's Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando shares his time-tested advice for visiting the world's most popular theme park and its neighboring Disney siblings. And Pauline Fromer updates her recommendations for visiting New York City this year. We'll check in with our friends from Fromer's a little later in the hour. We're at 877-333-RICK. What kind of fun are you looking for when you travel? I've discovered that tapping into the traditions of other countries is a surefire way to expand your entertainment vocabulary and enjoy the differences you find in the rest of the world. Anastasia Gaitanou is a tour guide from Thessaloniki who specializes in Greek history. She joins us now to help us visitors connect with the culture of today's Greece. Anastasia, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. You're a tour guide, and you make your living by helping Americans and other travelers understand Greece. Mm-hmm. What is the best way for Americans to really appreciate and connect with Greek, not history and art, but Greek culture? The best thing is, first of all, not to be afraid to try things out, experiment. Go to the sites, definitely. Go to whatever is famous and everybody goes to, because there are reasons why they do that. But after that, try to go where locals go. Try to get a bit off the beaten track. Go to little alleys and, and little streets. Go into little shops. Don't be afraid to try things of which you have never heard the name or haven't seen the shape. Because people eat it, and there is a reason for that as well. And don't be afraid to stay out late. Greeks stay out late. And you'll see that the promenade, I come from a city which is at the sea, the promenade will be full after 10 o'clock in the night. It will be full till 2 I think that's very good advice. Of course, when we go to Athens, uh, everything is cool and relaxed late Mm -hmm. in the evening, and people are out, young and old, and there's a beautiful light, it's comfortable, it's not so hot. You know, Anastasia, a lot of travelers, they'll go to Delphi, or they'll go to Olympia, Mm -hmm. and these are great ancient sites, and they stay there because there's a little town nearby, and it's quite a touristy town. But let's say you're staying in Delphi, or you're staying in Olympia. What is a way, after most of the tourists are back at their hotel, that you could be out and experiencing Greek culture? Well, what you can do is, again, the same thing. I mean, you can tell what is very interesting and what's not. And you can look into the shops and see where mostly locals mm-hmm. are sitting. Go there. So it's okay for that. if the locals are sitting there, it's okay to go in? Into if a the taverna? locals are sitting there, there is definitely where you have to go in. And besides, we're really friendly people. 
So I go into a little place. It's a place where the men are playing backgammon and they're drinking. uh, Backgammon is a national sport. And what would they be drinking? Oh, depends on the time of the day. They would either be drinking coffee. Uh-huh. And that would be either Greek or Turkish coffee. It's the same thing, but it's better to call it Greek in Greece. When you never Greece. know. Okay, good yeah. advice. And that's the coffee with the sediment. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, then you'll get somebody who will also tell you your fortune and your future. If after you have drunk the coffee, you will turn the cup upside down and wait a bit till all the sediment drips down. And then you can really have some very intense and very hilarious moments. Now, there's a perfect example. You've got a taverna. It, it's a lot of uh, local people, no tourists. You could go in there, play a game of backgammon, have Definitely. a cup of coffee. You've made some friends. And mm-hmm. then you'll eventually have somebody turning your coffee cup upside coffee. down and, and reading the coffee grounds. Mm-hmm. And then you have quite a good memory. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> and most probably they will invite you. The only thing you have to do is just step in and say hello. Usually we're very happy when we see somebody who's not from the area. Because in a small town, it's the same people every night. It's the same people. And this is something different. So a tourist can think that they're a blessing because they're bringing in some variety to the conversation. Mm -hmm. We're people who like to bring our culture over. So we, we want you to know who we are and what we are and why we do what we do so that you can understand it better because... I think traveling is, apart from everything else, it has to do with understanding. If you can't understand the culture and the country you're in, then you miss most of it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. As we do every week for an hour, we're learning about other cultures. Right now we're joined by Anastasia Gaitanu, a Greek guide talking about Greek culture and how we travelers can connect with it. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Marna's calling in from Scottsdale in Arizona. Hi, Marna. Rick and Anastasia, I wanted to tell you of a cruise we took this past spring, and we were in Athens, and we've been to Athens before, so our focus this time was on food, and of course, that's such a big part of experiencing the culture. So we did the Athens Food Tour, which is a walking tour in downtown Athens, and so we got into the markets, the meat market, produce, um, a grocery store, which The owner treated us with so many aspects of what he had in his store, the olive oils. Maybe the best was the spoon fruit, which is a very, very sweet topping, kind of like a jelly, but used mostly on ice creams and cakes. These are teaspoon sweets, is how we call them, and that is either fruit or vegetable cut in smaller pieces, and we boil it in water with sugar. It becomes very, very sweet, and we call it the teaspoon sweet because it's so sweet that you can't eat more than a teaspoon, which is actually not true, and (laughs) I'm speaking of personal experience. You can eat more. And usually we eat it with yogurt, or as it is, or with vanilla ice cream. Try it next time. It's really good. Now, Marna, that's an example of something I've never heard of, and you learned about that because you took a food tour. This is a local, a little business with a tour guide. You pay how much money, and then you spend the evening looking at a lot of places, or what? That's right. We pre-booked it online, and we met up with 15 different people, very international. Our guide was fantastic, and we started with street bread and then walked to the grocery, walked into a taverna, another uh, small grocery store that welcomed us with water, which I understand is very traditional, And then we had, of course, the yummy donuts. We had about nine stops, and the walking was not strenuous, but you walked a good bit. I believe it cost about $55 a person, well worth it with the 18 different food samples we had. And you could actually factor in the value of a meal out of that, I suppose. Oh, 
more than a meal. So Absolutely. let's say you're going to spend 30 bucks for a meal anyways. For $55, you get a meal in a mobile meal in nine different stops with a guide that explains you all the cultural insights. And this is a popular new kind of activity all over Europe, and I've done them in several cities in the last year. And i got to say, I'm really excited about these food tours. Marna, thanks so much for your call, and uh, I'm, next time I'm in Athens, I think I'll try a food tour. Well, we really always appreciate your help. Uh, happy travels. Thank you. Anastasia Gaetanou is our guide to really enjoying everyday life in Greece right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Marjorie's calling in from East Windsor in New Jersey. Marjorie, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for taking the call. I really appreciate it, Rick. And actually, my husband's also on the other line. He may help me out here. All right. But last year, in May, we went to Athens and Santorini and Naxos, and we had a fabulous time. Loved the food. Loved everything, really. But I will say, I think Naxos was just fabulous. That's great now, we food. liked it so much, we want to go back again, but we're debating about um, the time of year because we're thinking about April, which is their Easter and also my birthday. And I'm wondering, um, are things just going to be shut down or what should we do about it? Do you think it would be fun to go then or do you think it would be better? Last year we went just after Easter, mm. so we didn't experience that. So the springtime is a nice time to be traveling in Greece. And the question is, Easter is a very big deal in Greece, even bigger than Christmas. It's not always on the same day as our Easter. So remember, the Greek Easter might be a week or even more different. So Anastasia, what is the pros and the cons of traveling uh, during Easter in Greece? You do get the chance of looking at the inside of things and participate at festivals with the Greeks. You know that we have these special dishes that we eat, mainly lamb and a tri goat. It's better. Goat. It's just amazing. And of course, it's always escorted with a lot of wine and there is a lot of music and dancing. And that will be in most of the places also out in the street. And then the day after that, a bit, but most probably everybody will be completely exhausted and still drunk and hangover, you know, on Monday. So Sunday is the main celebration day. Drunk and hungover after your Easter celebration, <laughs> in good Greek style. It sounds like but, fun. Uh, the only thing you have to be a bit careful of is the days you will decide to travel, because if it's very close to Easter, then maybe the timetables will change, most probably. Oh, so just okay. ma- make sure that mm-hmm. it is the same time that you have booked. And streets will be full of Greeks going back to their villages or hometowns. So traffic jam, definitely. Mm -hmm. Marjorie, you were in Greece recently, and a lot of people are reluctant to go to Greece because of the news about the economic struggles they're having. Of course, they're having difficult times for the workers in Greece. But as a tourist, what was the impact of the economic problem for you? Actually, I was really happy to be there because they really need and count on tourism. So there were no negative impacts that I felt, and the people really appreciated and were grateful, especially in Athens. I mean, some older gentleman, he couldn't speak English, but we were still able to communicate, and we explained that, yes, I think a lot of Americans go into Athens and then immediately leave for the islands. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, we wanted to see Athens. We were staying there. And he was so happy, and he started to try and give us gifts like he had candy (laughs) in his pocket. (laughs) It was very sweet. It's so interesting to me that people who let the news, hysterical commercial news, shape their travel plans, they end up missing things. And the irony is the world is happening 
happening all around us, and it's safe, right. and it's friendly, bad things here. and there's bad things here. And I'm so glad to hear that you were there recently, you received a warm welcome, and you felt oh, safe. Oh, yes. The experience was so great that we do want to go back, and we did run into things. There were some demonstrations, but, you know, it wasn't violent, and it was no big deal to us. Very good. Marjorie, so thanks so much. Thanks for Can your Can I ask your one more question? Sure. I'm really interested in taking uh, cooking classes there in Athens or Crete. I think, is how you pronounce it, Kania? Is that where I should be looking at? Um, I don't Hania? Oh, Hania, Hania? You mean Hania? Yeah. Hania. <laughs> yeah. Crete. Well, if, if you take a cooking so class, a definitely so Crete. In Crete, there's a town, the main town is Hania, C-H-A-N-I-A. It's C-H-A-N-I-A, right? but it's not the main town. It's right. uh, a, a beautiful, picturesque little town uh-huh. on the north coast, but west. We yeah, were thinking about staying there, and you would recommend us some cooking classes there? Oh, yeah, definitely. Crete okay. or, or Rathimno, whatever you like. These are the two little oh, yeah. towns that are quite close to each other. Okay, yeah. cooking on Crete. I didn't know that's a good thing to do when you go to oh, Crete. Oh, yeah, definitely. There you go, Marjorie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have fun. Anastasia Gaetanu, thank you very much. And how do you say bon appetit in Greek? Kali orexi. Kali orexi. Efesto. Parakalo. Yana mafisis. Our colleagues from Fromer's Travel Guides update us next on two of the top travel destinations in the USA. We'll get tips for enjoying what's new in New York City in just a bit. But first, we help you and your family tackle the colossus of all theme parks, Walt Disney World in Florida. That's in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. The happiest place on Earth could end up feeling like an expensive disappointment if you don't go to Disney World well-prepared. The Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World in Central Florida is a permanent fixture in the top ten lists of visitor attractions in the USA. And that's not even including the visitor count at Disney's neighboring Epcot Center, Animal Kingdom, and Hollywood Studio theme parks. But the crowds and the heat can easily become an issue for families if you haven't done some homework. That's where Jason Cochran comes in. He's editor-in-chief at Fromer's Travel Guides, and every year he updates Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. Jason joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves with tips for visiting Disney's Florida theme parks. Jason, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Jason, I just want to talk about the Disney World Resort. Now, this is the most visited theme park in the world, I understand. It's 20 miles southwest of downtown Orlando, and it's a whole complex. How do you get your brain around the big picture? Give us the context of Disney World. It's a massive resort area. See, now, when Walt Disney opened Disneyland in California in 1955, he didn't realize what a success it would be and how all the motels and restaurants would cluster around it and build around it to kind of hem it in and make it seem really honky-tonk. So he bought a huge parcel of land in Florida where that couldn't happen again, where he could put his theme parks in the middle of the forest, dig out new areas of the swamp, and recreate things there so that when you go into the theme parks, and there are four at Walt Disney World, you never see the outside world while you're there. So it's a campus, really. Of, uh, I think there's maybe 17 or 18 major hotels and many more not-so-major hotels, plus shopping areas. Are you saying, Jason, that Disney did Disneyland and it exceeded his expectations? And he kind of stood back and he realized there's a lot of other people that are making yeah. money on this because I didn't think big and do all the hotels and restaurants. And so he thought, when we do this in Florida, we're going to assume it's a whole multifaceted way to make money. And he just went 
complete. He thought about every way that people are going to need to have accommodations and so on. Yeah, his party line, what he said publicly was, we don't want to spoil the fantasy. But I'm sure behind closed doors, he wanted a captive audience economically. So he was missing a lot of that uh, potential revenue in Anaheim, and he certainly didn't do that in Orlando. So you mentioned four parks. First of all, what are the four parks and how do they relate to each other? The biggest park uh, in terms of visitors, more than 20 million people come to it a year, which makes it the number one park in the world, is the Magic Kingdom. And when you think of Disneyland, you know, with the Space Mountain and the teacup rides, that's the park you're thinking of. Mm -hmm. There are three more, though, that started opening about 10 years after that one. There was Epcot which originally was sort of a vague emulation of the classic World's Fair Mm -hmm. that Walt Disney had grown up with as a boy. And the third park they added was a reaction to Universal Orlando, which was being built down the street at the time. That one was themed to Hollywood and the movies, the L.A. of lore. And that was called, at the time, MGM Studios. Now it's called Disney's Hollywood Studios. Hmm. And the fourth one, which opened about 20 years ago, is called Animal Kingdom, or Disney's Animal Kingdom. Sort of, you know, they they hated it in the beginning when you called it a zoo, but it's a zoological park with some rides. So when you're going to plan a trip there, you have to decide what you're going to prioritize, what's worth spending more time at and not, how you're going to spend your money, because... You know, it's such a universe of things to do. Beyond that, there are shopping areas and things like that, that people are lulled into spending days upon days upon days only on Disney property. That captive audience he was going for is a reality, and that takes a lot of pre-planning. So this is all one contiguous mall or campus or or park or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, buses connect them. You can move in there for a week and never come out and probably be busy every day. There are some people who go for two weeks and even three weeks. Now, I'm not one of them. I'm a backpacker through, you know, I went around the world seeing all these countries over two years. And somehow I come back and now here I am doing the Disney assignment. So I bring a different traveler's point of view to, you know, the false false Eiffel Tower. I want people to see the real Eiffel Tower. but I'm laughing because I spend, you know, several months a year researching guidebooks just like you. And... Man, you did a good job on this thing. And it's just, it's mind-numbing. All of the cotton (laughs) candy and all of the rides and all of the lines and the fast track and the fantasy this and the goofy that and the white knuckle this. This is like 300 pages of hard experience. You did this all and you're not even a, a Disney fanatic. No, I'm not a fanatic. I would say I'm a fan. See, the nice thing about Disney is there's an American cultural layer to this. There's a historical context, which I find fascinating. There are very few things that are more all-American than Disney. And I mean that also in the economic sense. Come on, or, you are know, you just trying to spin that? How he had to build really, this empire. <laughs> do you really no, it's true. That? Okay, what's genuine about it? Tell me. I, one of the things I like to do when I go to Disney, and people might think I'm crazy, is just to look at how things work. They have got crowd control to a science. They have yeah. got down to a science on how to get money out of your wallet without you even really realizing that you're opening the wallet. They've got making money down to a science. And they have people waiting in line for two hours at a time before rides and then leaving and saying they had the time of their lives. It's fascinating. You know, that to see is true, isn't it? That you've got important people. Their time is worth a lot of money. And they'll wait in line for an hour for a little 10-minute ride, won't they? And they won't think twice about it. And now this is the standard. You go (laughs) to a shopping mall in the U.S. And, you know, now even, uh, remember Abercrombie and Fitch looked like a Singaporean wharf house. They design everything to the nth degree now everywhere in America. And that's partly because of the influence that Disney had of setting a scene. And the scene setting makes people want to spend money. Now, there's also a long heritage of middle-class 
amusement areas in, in the United States and in Britain. I think Disney World is the modern-day American analog to Blackpool mm-hmm. or Brighton in the yeah, UK. Yeah, it's a where good way people to look go. At it. Yeah, yeah to, they, they might save up all year, bring their kids, and it might cost them quite a lot of money to get there and to stay there, but it's worth it because it's that thing they've been dreaming of doing together all year long. And I have to honor that when I write these Of course. Books. And there are people in England who will go to Blackpool or Brighton every holiday for 20 years yeah. and never go to France. And there are That's right. Not in the everyone United wants States. to see the real Eiffel Tower. Some people are happy to see the fake Eiffel Tower. And then there's there's room for everyone, both travelers and vacationers, and sometimes those two things cross and sometimes they don't. Well, and there's undeniably a lot of people that enjoy this kind of uh, vacation. If 20 million people go to the Magic Kingdom, I believe that's almost twice as many tourists as go to Venice. I, I mean, that's just mind-boggling. And I just love the candor that you bring to this book. I mean, some of the books about Disneyland, it sounds like they're written by the Disney people. But yours has a, an independent spirit. Can you give us just a, a little insight into that when it comes to writing a book to Disneyland? Well, Disney spends a lot of time and money cultivating bloggers and people on social media and other people to put out the good word that they want them to put out. And so there aren't many avenues where you can have sort of straight talk about how to see the parks that that isn't also tearing down the parks and appreciation, but with realism is kind of what I, I go yeah. for. I think because Fromers is a big enough name mm-hmm. um, that they're happy to have it, you know, because it's a major book that, that they can see on the shelf representing their parks and right. I don't tear them down, but um, they don't have any control over what I say. No, but you're not a show for uh, which the is, park. You're a consumer no. advocate here and you respect the park and you enjoy it. And it, it comes across right. very good. I think it'd be different if I went in there uh, and a either loved everything, which a lot of them do and mm-hmm. speak in very general vague terms and republish, mm-hmm. you know, artist renderings of every ride that they put out. Or and it'd also be different if I went in and, and just sort of tore it all down and complained about it and, and whined about how expensive it all is. People know it's expensive. Mm-hmm. People know there's a lot of crazy rules and go at this time and don't go at that time and avoid lines in this season and not at two o'clock. And that's why those giant books uh, sell is because people are really daunted when it right. comes time to planning their trips. Oh, and yeah. some people plan their trips for months and months and months ahead. As much as six or eight months ahead, the planning can begin depending on what you want to do. So um, I think it overwhelms and daunts people. And I wanted to make something that was much more simplified, but yet straight talk so you can enjoy it without letting it overwhelm your life. Because what fun is it running around trying to keep a schedule that you've laid out like you're a military general? Oh, you want to go to have a good time and, and see what you came to see. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jason Cochran, and he's the editor-in-chief for Fromers.com, and he writes their Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. It's updated every year. And Jason also co-hosts the Fromer Travel Show on the radio in New York City. Jason, it was interesting. You were talking about the Disney approach to media and publicity. And Disney is big enough and powerful enough to be able to control its media. And uh, I guess as consumers, people need to be aware of that. Yeah, it's hard to control me. I mean, I'm an individual guy walking to the gates with a notepad, which looks a bit strange, I have to admit, sometimes. Oh, so that's how you do it? You just, you just run around there like some creepy single oh, yeah. man with a notebook? Yeah, well, hopefully not the creepy part, but it depends on your point of view. Um, but uh, yeah, I've ruined a lot of shoes, but also written down a lot of menu items. You know, and yeah, that's it is literally pounding the pavement year after year to catch all the little changes. And I'll tell you, of all the things I cover regularly, this changes the most from year to year. You know, so? you know, Westminster Abbey, for example, when I cover London, they don't rearrange that too much. Right. You come in one door, you go out the other, and things are in the same place. But the rides that are changing, the the way the queues work. 
the menu items, the prices of everything, the rules on a ticket rule seem to change every single year. Obviously, things get much higher, but... I think you understand the game because you go back there with that critical eye and you go back year after year. So it must be fun for you just to see how they're uh, finessing it. Fun, uh, fascinating, a little depressing too. Because when I was young and I would go to Disney with my family, there was nothing the staff wouldn't do for you. No problem was too big for them to help you through. There's a huge quality control ethic there. And over the years, Disney has become a bit more about making the most money possible, just managing you as a body in space rather than managing your happiness. The culture in the company has changed over the years. So it's not as quote-unquote magical as it used to be. Walt Disney could have been all about magic, but when you have a corporation and a board, your magic is profit maximization in the short term for your stockholders. I mean, it's just And it switched over when it became public. When Disneyland opened, it wasn't public. Right. And he could do what he wanted. He could let people, you know, parking was nominal. I I think the entry gate was nominal, and what you paid for was per ride because he wanted people of all economic incomes to be able to come. That's just not practical anymore. A, because the board won't allow it now that they're traded, and B, you know, yeah, you have to manage people. Yeah, it's not an issue of practicality. It's it's an issue of uh, legal liability, I think. When you have a publicly held corporation, you have a legal yes. obligation to profit maximize for your to stockholders deliver. in the short term. Yeah. So you're not going to give people less than what the market would bear for their parking. Exactly. And and same, you know, you, they can't just allow everyone in off the streets either. They Now they've gotten to the point where it's so crowded, despite the high prices, that they have to find ways to manage the crowd. And The easiest way to manage the crowd is, unfortunately, through higher prices. And so middle-class families are slowly getting squeezed out or having to save up longer in order to go. Is that revitalizing the old roadside, Knott's Berry Farm-type funky little attractions that are more affordable for, uh, you know, working-class families? Well, I would like to see that. I don't know if I see a lot of evidence of that in Orlando, Mm -hmm. partly because of the captive audience thing we were talking about before. Yeah, every kid has to go to Disneyland. I mean, if you're a parent that doesn't take your kid to Disneyland, you are pushing the limit. (laughs) Yeah, you're disappointing the kids. They're scarred forever. But but at Disney, they try to get you to buy multi-day tickets, like seven, eight, nine days. Get the meal plan, get the hotel. Families that do that tend not to want to leave Disney, so they don't go see the other things to do in Orlando. They don't go to the roadside attractions. The Europeans tend to be better about it. European travelers come and they tend to explore a lot more than the American travelers. Yeah, because they're looking for more than, than just Disney. I think they're coming to America and Disney's a big part of it. It's Travel with Rick Steves and we're getting expert advice for tackling Disney World and its Florida theme park so that the happiest place on earth can live up to its promise when you and your family visit. Our guest, Jason Cochran, is editor-in-chief at Fromers. He personally researches and writes their guidebook to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando, which gets updated annually. We have links to Jason's tips for finding discounts to Disney World with this week's show notes, and you'll find that at ricksteves.com slash radio. Jason, I'd love for you to just kind of give us your take on the various parks and a a couple of tips about what's the most important thing and and what are the pitfalls and, and a little bit of savvy for us. First of all, Magic Kingdom, twice as large as Disneyland, but the same basic uh, layout. You've, you've got Fantasyland, Frontierland, Adventureland, Tomorrowland, and Tiki Room, and Swiss Family Treehouse, and Jungle Cruise, and all that. But twice as big, 20 million people a year. What is our best strategy, and, and what are the highlights of Magic Kingdom? 
twice as big, but it should be noted about the same number as attractions. They're just squeezed in more in, in California. But what I tell people to do first thing in the morning is rush up through the castle to Fantasyland because that's where the rides have longer lines because children want to ride them more. The lines build and stay big all through the middle of the day. So the very first thing in the morning, try to get a couple of those kiddie rides in. They're slow moving lines. So get them done. Okay. 20 million people. And sometimes it feels like they're all in line with you at Peter Pan. Uh, let's talk about Epcot. Now, this, as you talk about in your book, the fifth most visited theme park in the world, only 12 million entries, so uh, 60% of what, uh, <laughs> of what Magic Kingdom gets. We all grew up going to the World's Fair, you know, and uh, this is kind of like your permanent World's Fair, isn't it? Well, it used to be. I think the front part of the park used to have a bit more education than there is now. Now they've sort of switched over to thrills. And a lot of the old educational rides have been combed out. But now people, what they go to Epcot more for is food and drink, especially in the World Showcase area, which is where the little pavilions representing different countries. That's why Epcot is a bigger favorite with adults than hmm. it is with kids. Is this kind of a thing where most people who visit the complex here will have a ticket that gets them into all of these parks so they can just pop in and out over a couple of days? Or is it a major economic decision to add Epcot to Magic Kingdom? Generally, people will make a decision before they come to spend time in two or three or four of the parks, and they will buy a multi-day ticket ahead of time. And because the per-day cost decreases the more days you add on, most people will tend to be on a multi-day ticket, thinking it is a good value. There are individual day tickets. Mm -hmm. They're more complicated and more expensive. They're priced differently depending on what time of year you go. So it is possible to pop in, but that would cost you $125 maybe right. to pop in for one day. Whereas if you got a multi-day ticket, it would cost you the equivalent of like 80 or 90 per day. Typically, if you buy a multi-day ticket, does that cover all four parks? It will cover all four of the theme parks, yes. Right. Okay, let's move over to Disney Hollywood Studios. This is really just a, a salute to the movies. If you love movie lore, if you love Star Wars in particular, if you're all crazy about the, the Lion King, this keeps 10 million people a year happy. Yeah, I think it's the least interesting of the parks right now. They're building Star Wars land that won't be open for another couple of years. They're building a Toy Story land for little kids because they didn't have enough for little kids to do, but that won't be open for a year. Hmm. And as a result, half the park is under construction, and the rest just feels like advertisements for Star Wars. Hmm. There are a couple good rides that people really enjoy there, the Midway Mania, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, and the Roller Coaster. But in general, I'm not an advocate of just going to that park alone for right. a whole day. This year, it's not a value. So if you, if you got the many-day pass and you want to dip in, that would be fine, but not to yeah, go there as a destination. Don't lose sleep. And finally, uh, the Disney's Animal Kingdom. Is this a combination of your classic zoo, but also shows, animal shows? Only a couple. I mean, the, they have a bird show, for okay. example, but the animals are not asked to perform. In fact, the animals are usually put in paddocks that look almost exactly the way they would uh, live in the wild, and you drive through their paddocks. There are no visible bars, visible, you know, fences or cages in most of the instances. So it feels more humane. Meaning you're on a, some kind of a little choo-choo train or something? Yeah, there's, there's like a fake um, safari vehicle that you ride through this huge Kilimanjaro safaris attraction. But this is also where this year they're building the new Avatar-themed land. I'm not quite sure what it has to do with animals. I think they justify it by saying it's a natural theme. Well, Jason, thanks for writing Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. I'm sure it's helped lots and lots of families. You have wonderful introductions for practical tips and so on, and, and one of your big mistakes to avoid is over-planning. What do you mean by that? Let's just finish up this conversation with uh, if you're a parent and you want the family to have a great time, you can under-plan or you can over-plan. What are the issues there? 
I think people spend far too much time planning their Disney vacations. They're worried about getting every little detail right, worried about going in the, the lines are the least at that, you know, the right time of day. And if you do that, you don't spend time having a good time, relaxing. And your kids get stressed out if you're with kids because you're trying to meet every appointment. You're spending all your time on your app that Disney gives you to make sure you line up and go here and go there. It's just not as much fun. In the old days, you showed up to the park, you ate a little food, you rode a ride, you sat down, you looked at the balloons, watched the parade, you went home. And now it's like a military operation. Don't do that. It'll ruin <laughs> your vacation. Now, the Disney fans do it, but for a casual visitor like you, you don't need to behave that way. Jason Cochran, thanks so much and best wishes with your work. Thank you. Jason's boss, Pauline Fromer, joins us next with her recommendations for enjoying her home base, New York City, this year. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. If there's one city in the United States that every traveler really should get to, at least once in their life, it's got to be New York. It's an ever-changing, always-happening center of the nation's culture, business, and media. New Yorker Pauline Fromer loves her city and loves exploring what's new in its neighborhoods as she updates her best-selling guidebook. She joins us now for advice on what visitors to New York City shouldn't miss out on this year. Hi, Pauline. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, Pauline, when you designed this book and researched it, what was it like writing it, and how did you take advantage of the fact that it's your hometown? Well, I did something silly. I have daughters, and they had a scooter. And so I used the scooter to just scoot up and down most every street I could <laughs> to make sure that I didn't miss anything, because New York is such a rich, vibrant city. Although it's interesting, for those who have never been here before, above 14th Street, the entire city is on a grid. So you kind of know how much time it will take you to get from place to place. It's mm. a very orderly city. It's easy to find your way around uptown and in Manhattan. The rest of the boroughs, a little more complex. And for most travelers, they're the epicenter of all their sightseeing is that grid Manhattan. Yeah. I know that New Yorkers know there's a sort of a system. Can you teach us how to understand the, uh, the numbers and, and streets and so on? Yeah. So the avenues go north to south and the streets go east to west. So that means that when you're on Fifth Avenue, everything to one side of you is east, and everything to the other side of you is west. And then you can tell if you're going uptown if the numbers go up. So it's actually very, very easy to get around most parts of Manhattan. Below 14th Street, that's the older part of the city, and it's kind of like a pile of spaghetti, Okay, as many old cities are. There's not as much logic to the streets down there, but once you're above 14th Street, it's easy. It can be frustrating with all the traffic congestion, and sometimes you'd say it's just eight or ten blocks, but it takes forever. Do you find as a local that it, it really is more expedient to commit yourself to the underground? Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing greater, I think, than the New York City subways. They, they really are a lot of fun. Right now, we have the Second Avenue subway, which just opened up, uh, which takes you farther east on the Upper East Side than you ever could get to before, and also is filled with beautiful works of art. Uh, mostly by Chuck Close, but by other people, too. It's really a gorgeous new space. 
And then in the other subway stations, you're going to have musicians, you're going to have hmm. spoken word artists who in other cities might be known as beggars, but here in New York, they are so talented, they are so wow. uh, erudite often that, that you give them your money not because they need it, they do need it, but also because they charm you into giving it. But if you have to get somewhere in a hurry, yes, would you just go into the subway system rather than hop in a taxi? I think whenever you can, you should take the subway. It's so much easier than Mm -hmm. above-ground traffic, and you'll meet all kinds of New Yorkers down there. It's It's fast, it's affordable, it's a good experience. The subways of New York are terrific, or just walk. My rule of thumb is if something is less than a mile, I walk. And in New York City, because of the grid system, each block is the same length, so you know that 20 blocks are a mile. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pauline Fromer. Her book is Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City. Pauline, let's just talk about most memorable New York City experiences. Uh, What are three or four of the the musty experiences that you'd just like to really emphasize for the beginner? Well, you know, I think that most people who come here come here with a mission, and that mission is to remember 9-11 and the tragedy that, that happened there. And thankfully, I think... The creators of that museum did a a marvelous job in creating a museum that is both moving and incredibly informative. It's filled with artifacts. It's filled with people talking about that day, videos of what happened on that day, explanations about exactly what happened when and why. So I think that that is a a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and and Mm -hmm. people are going there. I think it's the most popular experience in New York right now, and Hmm. rightfully so. Uh, Near there, of course, is the Statue of Liberty. And even if you've seen a dozen pictures of her, seeing her in person Mm. is a a memorable experience. You know, I will underline that. I have seen a lot of places in my life, and I, I saw the Statue of Liberty and toured Ellis Island for my first time just a couple years ago. It just really was a beautiful experience. It was moving, it was inspirational, and it would be a shame to be in New York City if you haven't actually gone out to stand right there with the Statue of Liberty to to enjoy that experience. Yeah, the key is, ever since 9-11, unfortunately, there are a lot of security procedures and they're letting many fewer people go up to the crown. Mm -hmm. So the moment you know you're going to New York, get your reservations so you can climb up to the crown because... The outside of it is gorgeous, but so is the inside. The inside is created on a scaffolding that Gustav Eiffel of the Eiffel Tower created. Mm-hmm. And so it, too, is a work of art. Mm. And being up there in the crown and seeing the panorama of the New York City Harbor in front of you is, is just spectacular. Also, unforgettable experiences would be going up to the top of the Empire State Building and walking across Brooklyn Bridge. Well, every city has a great cathedral, and in our city, St. Pat's is nice, but to me, the real cathedral is the Brooklyn Bridge. It was a marvel of engineering when it was built, and you'll understand why it's so beloved when you're in the middle of it, seeing those snaking steel cables, the first ever created in the world, going up to these towers Mm -hmm. and seeing the city laid out before you. And then you can walk the bridge, and on the other side is great pizza and ice cream. Can't be beat. Now, let's talk news in New York City. Uh, You talk in your book about some kind of wacky new museums. Well, there's a museum in Chinatown. If you happen to be in Chinatown and you want something a little different, this is a fairly new museum. It's actually called the 
Museum. It's spelled M M U S E U M M, and it's in an abandoned elevator shaft. So it's free. It's only about I don't know. It's the size of a big closet. But they find the most interesting objects to fill it with. Objects that tell you a little bit about the world that we're living in. For example,、huh. they have final texts, so text messages that people sent to others either before they disappeared out of their lives or before they died. They、mm. also have a special compass that Islamic folks can use, so they know where Mecca is. Also,、uh, you talk about the Museum of the American Gangster. Yeah, this is a wild one. I thought this was going to be totally hokey. But it's a place where there had been a speakeasy, and all of New York is connected by these underground tunnels. This is back to Native American days, and so they use these tunnels to bring in the alcohol. And I don't want to give away the what you'll learn in this, <laughs> but there were two safes in the basement. Which contained six million dollars,、really? and when they reopened them in the 1980s, almost all the money was gone, and there was a bag of food in there that had rotted. And you try and figure out the mystery as you're scrambling through these basements and seeing the former speakeasy, and it's so much fun. It's really、hmm. great. Also,、uh, there's a real buzz for the、uh, the High Line. It's a sort of an abandoned elevated train line. It goes for like a mile and a half around Manhattan, right? And it's been turned、yes. into a park, which is very people friendly, giving you a, just a delightful way to get above the traffic and the noise and enjoy kind of a lush playground for New Yorkers. And then they have different outcroppings of the track where you can look right down into traffic zooming by below you. Somebody commented to me that. If you're going to do the Highline, right at the end of it or the start of it, whichever end you're on, is the new Whitney Museum. Yeah, that's been a big, exciting development in New York City. The old Whitney had been on the Upper East Side. They decided they didn't have enough room, so they built this massive museum. Renzo Piano was the architect. I don't really like the look of it from the outside, but you really can appreciate it inside. They have sixty percent more space. Which means that the Whitney's Mona Lisas,、uh, their Hoppers and their Calders and their paintings by Georgia O'Keeffe can be on display all the time, rather than just sometimes. So, is it mostly twentieth-century art? Yeah, they do American art only. Although they've expanded the definition of what American art means, and now it's sometimes people who come from other countries and live here. Oh, okay, which I think is a great expansion,、uh, but they've been very smart about how they did this museum. They created floors that are sprung, just like a dance studio, so your feet don't get tired as you're walking around. And the curators felt they didn't know what would be happening with art in ten or twenty years, so this museum is built with almost no interior walls. And lots and lots of power outlets, so that artists can transform the space to fit what art means when they are making it. So every time you visit there, it's like a totally brand new museum. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pauline Fromer, and her book is The Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Pam's calling in from Atlantic Beach in Florida. Pam, do you have yes, any、uh, tips for New York City? 
wanted to let you know that I, I try to go to New York every year and uh, just went there this past October, went to a new museum called the New Gallery. It, it has Klimp, which a lot of people in the United States never get the opportunity to see mm. any Klimp. And they have the woman in gold, which was fought over and brought back from Vienna um, by the ancestors of the, the lady that was painted in that picture. So I really would urge people to try to go to that. It's like a, just a small little gem. It's a wonderful museum. It's actually about Austrian art and architecture. They have the lady in gold full-time. Recently, they had a, an exhibition of many of Klimt's work, but you see Egon Schiel, and you see Bauhaus furnishings, and it has the most wonderful tea room where you can have a, a lovely snack, and it's hard to find good food on Museum Row. So that's a delightful place. It's in an old mansion owned by one of the robber barons of New York. So what's in the museum is, is fabulous, and also the setting is extraordinary. Wow. Sounds great. Yeah, it's, it was my first time, and I saw the movie Woman in Gold. That's what made me want to go to this particular gallery. It's impressive that they have that precious Klimt there after all the struggling over what is its rightful home. It was Yes. Yeah. All right. Pam, thanks for your I, call. I have one question. Chinatown is kind of a mystery. I heard you talk about that museum. Is there any other areas that, within Chinatown or other recommendations for restaurants or things to do? There's actually a couple of Chinatowns in New York City. Probably the most authentic one is way out in Flushing, Queens, so not in Manhattan. But in Manhattan, sure, you go up and down Mott Street and uh, you see all kinds of different stores, Buddhist temples, wonderful restaurants with cuisine from all over China. This has actually been a big trend just in the last two years. We're getting a wide variety of new Chinese restaurants hmm. that are much more like you'd have in Asia, where you taste Fujianese cuisine or the cuisine of Xi'an or the cuisine of Beijing in particular. Uh, so it's not just Cantonese food anymore. We're getting a lot of really interesting varieties created by the top chefs in China who are coming to New York to put their outlets here. Pauline, you wrote about the International Express. I guess that's the nickname of it. Number seven train going through Queens, lacing together one ethnic neighborhood after another. Yes, absolutely. You can take the International Express, which is actually a federally designated road of high culture. I'm not getting the title exactly right, but uh, the federal government recognized its importance. And one of the great things about going to New York City is that one out of every four people in this city is foreign-born. So you get the whole world here. You get such a wide variety of perspectives and of backgrounds. And it it really is such an international place. And you really feel that when you go to Queens in particular. That's something to take uh, note of. I think that number seven train sounds great. Pam, thanks for your call. Thank you very much for the information. You bet. Happy travels. Bye-bye. Pauline Fromers, the author of Fromers' Easy Guide to New York City. It's updated annually with insider tips to Manhattan and the outer boroughs, and it includes a fold-out map of the city. She's joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves from the studios of the Radio Foundation. That's near her home on the city's Upper West Side. Pauline's website is fromers.com. And James is calling in from Virginia Beach in Virginia. Hi, James. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I'm a big fan of New York City. I haven't been there in five or six years, so I'm... I just got a picture last week of the the Oculus 
transportation hub down there, which looks pretty awesome, isn't it? Oh, but yeah. There, that's <laughs> a new massive work of architecture that's a subway station by the internationally known architect Calatrava. Mm. And it looks like a giant... I don't know. It looks like giant wings. It's white and it's soaring and it's absolutely gorgeous. Might be one of the most beautiful subway stations hmm. outside of Paris. I love New York City, but I haven't been in several years. That's why I'm. My question is trying to trying to eat for a reasonable cost. Like, tell me where some of the good classic delicatessens are. Where I can get you know good sandwiches. I'm walking around. That's a tragic story. Um, most mm. of the classic delicatessens have closed. Uh, the one that's left is Katz's Deli on the Lower East Side. Uh, and, I mean, it, it's tragic but mixed. I, I, I guess it's a story of gentrification because we've seen a lot of new-style delis open up, uh, places where you're going to get that great pastrami and those great cured uh, and smoked fish, but for a lot more money. Uh, mm. Places like uh, Russ and Daughter's Cafe, and there's a wonderful a place called Miles End, which actually serves uh, Montreal-style deli food, which is darn good. Uh, but the really cheap, good delis, they, they've gone the way of the diner. Uh, New York City is losing both of those. Mm. And by diner, I don't mean the eater. I mean uh, diners where you mm -hmm. sit on stools and order burgers. Yeah. I have a favorite little place in Chinatown. Whenever I take the bus up there from Virginia Beach, Norfolk, there's a dumpling place on one of the streets that I really like. <laughs> well, that's the way to eat cheap in New York City, actually. I you go either bagels. with bagels or you go with dumplings. James, thanks a lot for your call. Oh, well, thank you very much for taking my call, Rick. I hope you can find a good deli next time. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Okay, bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pauline Fromer, and her book is Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City. Pauline, we were just talking about this trend of the of the sad death of the New York deli. Yeah. What are some happier trends that we should know about before we go to New York City? Well, Broadway is booming. Everybody wants to see Hamilton, but the truth is there are lots of great shows, and Broadway is posting record profits this year. Now, don't be the mm. one who's giving them those profits. There are ways to save money. There are these great apps and websites, websites like broadwaybox.com and apps like Today Ticks that get you tickets for half off. So Broadway's booming. Other trends include Hawaiian food. Everybody is going crazy for pokey here. Pokey is huh. raw fish with white rice and lots of other things you can mix in, dried seafood, grilled garlic and onions and delicious sauces. And they're popping up everywhere. And they're, it's a good, nice, affordable meal. The, the biggest trend may be that prices for hotels are starting to drop. I just was doing my spreadsheet today, working on the next edition of my guidebook, and everything is cheaper, not just now, but in the coming months. That's because it looks like fewer foreign visitors are coming to New York and the rest of the United States. So for Americans, this could be good news. Is, is Airbnb and VRBO driving prices down in a way, too? Well, Airbnb and, and VRBO are illegal here in New York unless oh, you stay in someone's apartment. 
But if you rent an entire place for less than 30 days, you're breaking the law, and the government has been cracking down. They just issued a fine of $17,000 on a property owner. They're not cracking down on tourists, but you could show up and not have a place to stay. Wow, well, that'll be something to stay tuned to. Pauline Fromer, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, best wishes with your book, Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to KPCC in Pasadena and the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. You can join us on the air as a caller during our next recording sessions. Find out what we're talking about. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com.